Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here. Welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we are back for part two of our two-part series, all about acquisitions for growth of a business. And so if you didn't listen to part one, part one was all about why 77% of all acquisitions fail and how not to be one of them. But in this episode, part two, we're trying to provide a more uplifting uh, approach to this discussion. We're talking about how it is that you can be the one in four acquisitions that are a rip-roaring success. And in order to continue talking about this, we have the very, very knowledgeable Mark Johnston from Sherlaw's group to give his insights and case studies as to how acquisition through growth can fuel your organization, but how to do it in a way that leads to a success rather than a failure. So buckle in for part two of our series. Here we go with Mark. Mark, I just want to say a massive thank you for coming back onto the Deal Room podcast today for part two of our two-part episode, all about acquisitions for growth. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Now, I'm um, an optimist at heart, so I couldn't leave it at our part one, why three quarters of acquisitions fail. I felt we needed to round it off with this part two, how to make it a roaring success. A good news story. A good news story. (laughs) I like the good news stories. I I just feel like maybe we've depressed all of our audience Mm. who are off for acquisitions by our last episode. Let's do the upbeat version and Mm. um, let's talk about what it is that businesses can do to make an acquisition a success and what it is that they should look for when they're yeah. acquiring. Yeah, great. And thank you. Um, firstly, as we discussed in the first half, it's you know, firstly, tap into why you're acquiring and, and really get clear as a business, as when you're looking at other businesses, as to what you're trying to achieve from that, why you're doing it, and then look for aligned values in that company as well. So if you get really clear on the, on the why we're doing this and what it's going to achieve, yeah. we can then um, create that success. So often we talk um, when looking to acquire is we actually say, well, let's take off your management hat and your employee hat and put your shareholder hat on and actually say, well, you know, ultimately we're acquiring a business to create share price growth. So let's look at how do we actually, in one of the key contexts is, is this going to actually create the right amount of share price growth? And then you get share price growth from having, you know, managing risk and reward. So what we often talk about is what would you do if you had a blank whiteboard? What are the three rules that you'd apply? Before we talk about those rules, I just want to stop just to highlight what you've just said, because you're talking about share price value here, which Mm. is something that maybe sounds obvious, but that component that I find business owners often just don't think about, that Mm. share price value, Mm. rather than just revenue profit, it's Mm. valuation, right? So anyway, so I just wanted to stop and highlight that because I think therein is is something that 
maybe is implied in what you're talking about, yeah. but I just it's such an important point. Okay, yeah. all right. So the three rules then. Yeah. So the the three rules of Silicon Valley. The first and most important one is what's happening in the in the industry. Is the industry growing? Because as we talked about in our last podcast, ninety eight point four percent of the returns come from the asset class you're in, as opposed to an individual company. Just like the mining example, the worst miner is still going to get six times the share price growth because of the iron ore price. So the critical thing is to sit there and say, well, what industry are they in and what industry are we in? And if we're going to invest in an acquiring company, if we're going to acquire a business, let's make sure that there is growth in that industry. So um, the Maloney family built a very successful mining services business servicing the mining sector and were able to sell out at an $800 million return purely because they'd picked a hyper-growth market. So if we're looking to acquire a company, firstly, we want to look at the company itself and make sure there are a whole bunch of things that are in that company that uh, satisfy our due diligence processes. But most importantly, it needs to be in a growth industry because if that industry is in decline, where it doesn't matter how well run the business is or how well run our approach is toward the acquisition, ultimately we won't get the returns. So the golden rule is, Pick a growth industry because that rising tide will lift all the boats and mm. significantly de-risk the, you know, the returns that, you know, when you're deploying your capital. Because for most of us, when we're in the SME sector, we don't have you know, tens of millions of dollars sitting in, in the bank. We've got a limited amount of capital, which we want to deploy wisely with as less risk as possible. So the first rule is to identify a growth industry. Sorry, and can I pause there? Um Quick question, how is it that business owners who've never thought about this before, never thought about looking at different industries and growth growth trajectories and trends, mm. what, are there some simple tips that you can suggest for them as to how they work out what their industry looks like in terms of, you know, trends, growth? Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and firstly is understanding, you know, what business they're in themselves and what industry they're in. And, you know, the oldest example is Union Pacific with the largest uh, company in the world in 1900. And they thought they were in railways because they built railways across the United States and, mm. and piggybacked the growth of the United States. So they thought they were in railways. And the, a growth market happened right under their nose in 1904. Something called air travel was invented by the Wright brothers because they flew an airplane. And then in 1909, Henry Ford invented mass production of the, the Ford motor car. So they thought they were in railways. So they just looked at these other sectors and said, these other businesses and said, well, they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. If they knew they were in transport, what they would have done is bought Ford Motor Company very cheaply mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. bought the Wright brothers. It's why Yahoo tried to buy Google for $3 million. So Google wanted $5 million from Yahoo. Yahoo offered them three and Google said no and the rest is history. So wow. when understanding, so what you look for are related industries. The newspaper industry is a really good one. It's in decline um, and as a result, what that means is because they thought they were in printing, not content. And now we look back 20 years after the internet revolution and think, well, how could they not know they're in digital content? But 20 years ago, the management teams had grown up on the printers, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Rupert Murdoch famously worked on the printing presses in 1948. So what we see in industries and businesses is a, is a narrow blinkered approach of we're in widgets or we're in this. And if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So mm -hmm. what Union Pacific could have done is bought Ford Motor Company 
uh, just like Yahoo tried to buy Google for $3 million, and that's the most expensive $2 million, I think, in history, not, mm. pulling the, not going to five. But another really relevant example is when Union Pacific were the largest uh, company in the world, the people that cut down the trees and made their wooden sleepers, because the sleepers for railway tracks are made out of wood, as everyone probably knows on the call, that company was called South Pacific Rail Infrastructure Network, and they didn't think they were in the sleeper business. They knew they were in the infrastructure support business. They were providing infrastructure support to a high-growth industry such as Union Pacific, just like the Maloney family and mining services. So what you, what's who Sprint is now today, 140 years later, South Pacific Rail Infrastructure Network is now a company called Sprint. It's the same company, and they provide cell phone tower and cell phone services to the US cell phone providers. So they've always been in infrastructure. They used to be called South Pacific Rail Infrastructure. They're now called Sprint, which is a much more fancy name, but it goes back to their, their origins. So understanding what business you're in and that growth sector. So the internet, it, growth industries like that, the green economy, if you look at the green economy, well, that's obviously an area where there's continued growth. So what to look for are growth sectors where yeah. there's demand driven by technological change, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily right. government change, but look for technological change. And the point of all of this, I, I guess, you know, our discussion here is that you, you've, um, you've got to look broadly because you might have the blinkers on and not realise yeah. you do. And I guess that's where external advice can sometimes yeah. come in useful. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> look, it does. And that's where, you know, advisory boards and, and governance boards are, are really important. You know, they, yeah. they should be able to see around corners. So, so the other key thing to look for is, you know, is it a product versus a business model business? So if you're picking, if you're looking at an acquisition, acquisition target and it's in a growth industry, what you've got to look for, you know, in that Union Pacific example is actually do they understand what business they're in and is it product-based or is it business model-based? Because if it's just product-based, product cycles change, technological advances happen, disruption occurs, we, you know, we see it all the time. But if they've actually got a business model mindset and, and can adjust their product, just like South yeah. Pacific Rail Infrastructure Network did, what that means is the business is much more likely to, A, profit from the growth in the sector but also, just as importantly, have less risk associated because as soon as it's heavily focused on just the product, you know, the, the product can go away. And, and the, the best example for all of that is printed newspapers. You know, how many of us on, a, on the podcast, you know, still, you know, read a newspaper in print versus read it on our phones or on, on our iPads? And then the third most important thing to look for is the quality of the management team. Uh, and, and this is really important. So the first thing is, is the industry going because that 98.4% comes from the asset class. Do they have a business model approach as opposed to a product approach? And then is the management team of high quality? Because ultimately, a quality management team, and you know, Peter Druck has done many um, reports on this, but culture trumps strategy every time. Mm. So what you want in that quality management team is, is the right sort of teamwork, no ego, humility, that ability to be resilient, to, 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 to come through change. And that's what they call, you know, in private equity and, um, and venture capital because the advantage of taking a venture capital mindset is that venture capitalists are actually people who invest in a, a business to hope it's successful. Mm. So we need to take that mindset when we're looking to acquire a company. What would a venture capitalist think? How would they help this business be successful? What would they look for? And if we, take, if we look at their investing rules, well, we can just apply that ourselves and if those three are in play, well, the business, 
the acquisition is much more likely to be successful. If one of those isn't in play, if the market isn't growing, if they don't have the right business model and they don't have the management team, it's much less likely that your acquisition will generate the returns at once. So why they talk about you know, private equity and venture capitalists talk about putting the band back together is what they're actually doing is putting a quality management team that they've worked with before, you've worked with before, back into the business. The private equity guys do it all the time. In turnarounds, they bring their own guys in. Mm. So the, you know, for our, our um, listeners on the podcast, if you just think about in your corporate work experience or your current world, like people you really enjoy working with or really quality teams that you've worked with versus poor teams that you've either worked with or, you know, or, you know, a boss you've had, just think about that. You know, just think about if that poor boss, the, the worst boss you've ever had, if that person's in that leadership team of the company you're acquiring, you're not going to get the results. Whereas yeah. if the best ever leadership team or management team you've ever worked in, if they were running that business, what could they do with that? So, mm-hmm. Quality management team is absolutely critical. All right, so they're the three key lessons from Silicon Valley. Um, so now let's maybe move on to what it is that businesses should look yeah. for when they're acquiring. So what we kind of call those first three factors are the macro factors, like they're, mm. they're the most important things. And and the next things are what we call the micros, which is, again, just as important but almost subsets of those first three criteria. So the first thing to look for, um, you know, when acquiring is what we call the logbooks for a car. Um, you know, so if, you know, w- when we're looking to acquire a, a, a business, we often don't take the mindset we do when we look to buy a house because what we do when we buy a house, we get an inspection report, we look yeah. for the opportunities, can I create growth at a room? And it's the same with a car. So often, you know, we see businesses where in Silicon Valley, they call it, you know, they've pla- painted lipstick on a pig which is the business has just got a paint job. It's like selling a, buying a house that's just had a paint job. So if there are two old, you know, two classic Ferraris for sale, both for $200,000, and one is owned by a, a gentleman of indeterminate wealth where you're not sure where it came from, and the other is owned by the president of the Ferrari club with logbooks, service history, all the way yeah. back through the last 30 years. Well, if both of those cars are on the market for $200,000, the, you know what we then what we find when we do our public speaking is people won't buy the the guy you know the, the Italian gentleman from Carlton in in Melbourne they won't buy his car for 190 they won't buy it for 180 they won't buy it for 170 they'll buy it for about 150 because at that point there's the the risk reward kicks in so what yeah. we talk about is if you don't have logbooks in your business and talk about how you're adjusted with failure and have that depth of management reporting. Mm. What you're leaving is 25% on the table. So as an acquirer, what you want with that log books or the inspection report is it's, it shows that the business has been well run. Much and less. what are we looking for in these log books? So let's break it down. Yeah, so what we're looking for are org charts, functional charts, um, how they grow the business, a source-based KPIs. So outcome-based KPIs are, you know, if you hit a million bucks, uh, we'll give you a hundred thousand dollar bonus. Whereas an outcome, an activity based or a source based KPI is to hit that million dollars, you need to do eighty cups of coffee a month, which is you know um, um, you know a thousand a year. And in on January thirty one, when you started the year, if you if you haven't done eighty, you've only done forty. There's uh, performance management, etc. So what source based um, KPIs or activity based KPIs is they give you certainty. So we're looking for um, org charts, functional charts. We're looking for board minutes, like monthly board meetings. We're looking for action items that have actually been acted upon. Mm. So quite often when we do, we go into the data room 
of a business, we'll see a bunch of information that there was never acted upon. We'll actually look at the action items from the board meeting, if there was a board meeting. A lot of SMEs don't even have board, you know, proper board meetings. Yeah. And we'll actually look at, did they actually do what they said they would do in the board meeting? And yeah. the next board meeting, three months' time, did they discuss that? And if they haven't, well, we know it's just, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just nice to have, but they're not actually running the business properly with governance. Yeah. The other, the other thing we look for um, is the when's the data room populated. So a really good trick for any due diligence or anyone looking to acquire a company is look at when the documents were saved. Mm. Because most people know that they need this information. So what we love to see is a, bunch, a data room populated quickly in mm. advance. So if, they, if we give them a, a deadline of midnight on Wednesday the 15th, we actually like to see it populated a week before with documents that are three years old. Yeah. Board meeting from 2014. Because they're organised, they've got it at their hips. Whereas if, it's all the do- if all the documents are saved, you know, 11.59pm, you know, yes. like a, three year, a document purportedly from three years ago was saved yesterday or last night, that just is a massive red flag that yeah. you're going to get the results. So actually, and it's just like, you know, it's like buying a house or an asset, right? The less risk in that asset or the house while we have inspection reports, the more valuable it is because when acquiring a business, it's not just about upside, but it's about managing that risk. So, you know, we look for logbooks. Yep. They have those logbooks. Logbooks. Um, and then okay. the second one is management team quality. So mm. how have they dealt with failure? Is there resilience? So what we look for in the data room, as we discussed quickly on our last podcast, was what failures have they dealt with and how did they deal with it? Because what we want to see is a, is a ratio of about 80% success but also, you know, uh, the odd failure along the way and they dealt with it, they pivoted, they evolved because if they've said that they've never had a mistake, they're either lucky or lying and both are uninvestable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is a critical That's one. That's a good they say, point. They say, we've never made a mistake. Well, there's ego in the business or they're lying or they're yeah. lucky. So if there's ego or they're lucky or lying, that's a red flag to walk away. And the other critical thing to look for is, as I said, do they have a governance board? Who's on that governance board, but also an advisory board as well. And advisory boards are very common in the United States and are becoming more common in Australia. And there's certainly something we recommend. And, and what we look for on an advisory board is typically it's got four people and there's someone in your industry who's done what you're trying to do, which is what we call the grey head credibility. So if you're a if you're in construction and you're a fifty million dollar construction firm, what you'd want is someone on your advisory board who's worked at Len Lease or built or something who's who's done what you're trying to do. Someone else who can open channels or open doors that you couldn't open yourself organically. So that's often what used to be referred to as the Rolodex, mm. that ability to open up doors um, and reward that person because it creates um, future growth. So what that means as an investor when we're looking to acquire is they've actually got some future growth in the business. I'm not just buying the business today as it stands. There is growth baked into it via these sorts of opportunities. Mm. And that's the point of the acquisition, that there's growth in it, right? Because otherwise, why are you doing it? it, And if it's just what we call um, linear growth, which is just, you know, last year plus 10%, 10%, 10%, you're better off putting your money in the stock market. Yeah. Um, you, what we want to look for is that 30% growth minimum to, to compensate for the risk of an SME, but also to otherwise you, you could actually do it organically yourself. So mm. we absolutely, um, and, and the other person we want on the advisory board is someone who's got financial and legal knowledge mm. to help SMEs because that's often a gap. Often SMEs have grown up with 
the lawyer that first started advising them who's yes. cost-based and the accountant who first started advising them who's cost-based and not strategic. So one of the yeah. questions we ask is how long have you had your accountant? How long have you had your lawyer? And if they haven't changed them up or they haven't, or their lawyer or accountant hasn't grown with them, that tells us that they're probably not getting high-level advice. Yeah. So what we love to see is they've got an accounting firm that's very strategic in nature, that's pushing the CEO to do the you know, right sort of management reports, a lawyer they ring up before they incorporate a company or before yeah. they do something as opposed yeah. to doing it and then going, oh, we might have made a mistake. How do we how do we waste time and energy to fix this? Fix it, yeah. As opposed yep. to, so actually, you know, what, what's the skill sets they're getting? And then what we call a maverick on the advisory board, someone who's actually scaled a business in another industry. Because, I love it, maverick. Yeah. <laughs> and we give it that frame. We give it that name. Yeah. I don't think we have to pay copyright to Tom Cruise. I'm sure we don't. <laughs> But, yeah, it, but, it, but that maverick often asks the question that that you know that that golden question. They go against the grain. It's that angel's yeah. advocate. Um, you know, it's not devil's advocate. They're an angel's advocate. So if they've got that, <laughs> if they've got that advisory board and that governance board, they're a massive tick. That, that's a massive green flag. It's a it 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 should give you the confidence. The other key thing is is timing. So as we've talked about in, in the first podcast, when you're looking at the your returns and your modelling, just double the time it's going to take and halve the upside to, <laughs> to make sure you've got, you've got enough wiggle room because if it's if if the returns are dependent upon actually hitting the agreed numbers you won't hit them and then the other um, key thing is buy or build which is what we call the arbitrage growth which is do they by buying them does that save you the build time so often companies will get acquired because a large corporate you know buys the team so also look for what can create that arbitrage growth so that um, you can actually get that compound growth from them by buying them to get that return and so, the, and sorry that's one of my favorite components of acquisitions yeah. and that's where I see it used really well yeah speed to market is absolutely a great way to do it and again it's and the typical two ways are they've got a distribution channel you don't have they own mm a channel or they've got a product that you could put down your channel and create hyper growth and it might take you 18 months to build the product you're better off paying a premium for someone who's got that product because you can yeah. put it down your channel immediately so that that speed to market context is, is what we call sort of arbitrage growth or buy or, or build um, mm. you know it, and it, it makes sense for all parties it makes sense for the acquirer it makes sense for the acquisition and the last thing to you know think about when looking at it is how do you structure the deal? So often when there's an acquisition, you know, we see 51-49 on the, on the share register, 51% mm. to the acquiring company, 49, earnings, mm. earns, outs, all these mm. sorts of things. Mm. What that 51 is trying to replicate, is trying to, um, what it's trying to solve is control. Mm. So what we do when looking at a deal is actually separate out the three components, which is what's the, what are the income or the revenue components of each deal for the company we're acquiring and, the, the revenue impacts for us of that acquisition and that's where we look for hyper growth. And then what's the equity structure? Because the reason, as we said, 5149 exists is because we need to get that control. So, But often if I could invest in a high growth property company and get 10% equity but want control, well, I'm never going to be able to do the deal. Yeah, I know there's going to be growth. So what we often say is equity is about fairness and upside. And the mistake with 51 and 49 is it's about control. So the equity structure might be, you know, to come in at 40% now and then 20%, you know, buying it over time. 
what that allows you to do by getting the equity structure right is actually doing what's in both parties' best interests because as soon as it's one party's best interest and not another, that's where we get the failure rates because it, you know, it, it, you, you've just got human beings that aren't, don't yes. feel respected. So why we talk about separating out control is because if you separate out control, it can allow you to, to do a clean equity deal. So things like um, you know um, power of veto or right of first refusal or those sorts mm. of things for a defined period, typically three years after acquisition or those sorts of things, tends to solve the problems because most entrepreneurs, both from the acquirer but also the target acquisition company, we're all entrepreneurs and we're really happy to have revenue share conversations and equity conversations or we'll merge this together. We'll go into a new co and we'll do, bring 60 and 40 and that'll, you know, if, if my share price is a dollar and yours is a dollar and we can both get it to $3 by merging and the deal 60, 40, well, we do that every day of the week. What stops it is control and emotions. So by mm-hmm. actually separating out the control, and this is really important for, um, you know, if someone ever you know has an internal staff you know, succession, like it's always control that's that's the issue and the sticking point. So actually separating out control processes around rights of first refusal, power of veto, three years, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and articulating those up front mm. and putting those into the agreement means you can also, most importantly, initiate the transaction or complete the transaction much faster, which mm. means it doesn't get into the opportunity cost because as soon as we're arguing over things, that means the acquiring company's burning time and energy and the acquisition target is also doing that. And both, that's and, right. And most yeah. importantly, if they're not, you know, if they're spending 10 days a month over nine months not focusing on their core underlying business but actually trying to manage a transaction, well, that's, that's a significant amount of, you know, of energy that d- distracted and a significant diminution in value, mm. which is, you know, one of the, which is one of the major complaints acquisition targets have. They go into exclusive negotiating periods and all these sorts of things and they burn just a heap of time. So mm. by actually articulating control separately and having separate um, agreements around that, it allows you to create the transaction much faster which means everyone gets the uplift because everyone's focused in going the same way. And most importantly, you know, where that control directly links back to is that linkage back to culture and are they the right fit? Because mm. it should feel right. There was a, I saw someone interviewed the other day and they said they know they've done a good deal when both parties walk away unhappy. <laughs> because there's, there's, there's friction and our approach is different. Like maybe like, a bit old-fashioned, but, you know, our definition of fairness, you know, it's not necessarily 50-50, but... A deal will work when both parties feel energised from it. Because yeah. if I'm going into a property with my brother, 20, 80, I put in 20%, he puts in 80, the returns on the profit or you know, the capital gain should be separated out 20, 80. If I've paid rent or done this, well, then you, 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 have a, you, know, you keep a ledger, so to speak. So, but as soon as a party feels aggrieved or taken advantage of, yeah. they just don't work as hard. So what we want to create, you know, if, we, if I've got a, a cake there if I cut it you get to choose which bit right it's the only way to guarantee fairness if I cut a smaller mm-hmm. bit you'll take the bigger one so that mindset shift of let's not have an adversarial relationship or an approach is let's actually have a good guys approach and go if they both feel energized and we feel energized because the deal's fair mm. well both parties will for the next three years will work hard yeah, and we'll have a much greater likelihood of success so that feeling should be we both feel good about this 
Yeah. But do you know, like it's an interesting point because some there's some personality types who just can't help themselves. They never feel like they've got a good deal until they've driven it as hard as they can and then and then some. Yeah. <laughs> and then they feel like, you know, that that's the that's the only way they feel that they've achieved a good deal. So it is yeah. a mindset shift, isn't and it? And look, and, and this is supposed to be the, the good news story. Let, let's because you know, those sorts of, we've all, I think we've all dealt with narcissists and control mm. freaks. Um mm. You know, in, in business, you know, we all do. Like, to, mm. and I don't think we need to get into, you know, psychoanalysis. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, why we talk about control up front as a part of that is because as, as soon as if we're advising a company, if in the target company, if we see that control freak or, you know, those control issues or those ego issues, that's mm. just a massive red flag for us. Mm. You know, what we want to see is humble leaders with, you know, good staff retention and, you know, a you know, a well-running, you know, a business is an ecosystem of humans. And, you know, when we do, do buy-side DD, if we'll walk the factory floor or walk the trading room floor with the CEO, like mm. we don't just accept they've got good numbers and that the staff love them and all those sorts of things because no one ever fills out a survey monkey going, I hate my boss. Mm. But when we walk the factory floor or the trading room floor or, the you know, the, the, if it's an accounting firm, the floor and if the staff are coming up to that CEO and saying hi to each other and the energy's there because, you know, mm. you can't lie about energy. So if the energy, mm. they were like, tick, if you're walking the factory floor or, the you know, the floor and the staff are diving around, turning around the other way, trying to avoid you, you know, mm. you can feel the energy, right? No one can, mm. you know, no one can lie. So if, if there's that negative energy in the business, well, that's a red flag. Again, whereas if there's that positive energy, well, again, we know that we're buying a team and, and it's real because, again, the spreadsheets and the IM and all the information don't say, you know, we've got, you know, lazy staff, high staff turnover, no one likes each other. Mm. You know, it doesn't say that. Whereas, you know, mm. walking the floor, you know, paying a visit to them, it tells you everything, right? It does. And it's interesting that the negotiation process can sometimes act as the filter. And this is where I think... Um, businesses need to be careful about who they're using as their deal team as well because mm -hmm. sometimes the yep. deal team can step in and create um, an atmosphere that really sets everything off on the wrong foot and yeah. if it doesn't kill the deal then it can create mm -hmm. issues yep. that will continue to come up in the mm -hmm. deal so I think this is where some of the importance is about the the members of your deal team as well yeah and that's you know so many you know we've all got those terrible stories of you know at the 11th hour just goes pear-shaped because yeah. someone, you know, said something in a certain way that they shouldn't have done and, you know, there's frustration and all those yeah. sorts of real emotions. It goes of the advisors sometimes as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it can be a real and, problem. And, yeah, and again, the, and often the, you know, the target acquisition company get frustrated because they're like, you didn't set the expectations as a deal team that, oh, I would have to mm. spend this much time, provide this much information. Mm. You know, mm. If you tell a, a, a target a acquisition target that, you know, that you are going to, it's going to cost them or they're going to have to spend this amount of time, do these things. You have to deliver on that. As soon as yeah. you go above and beyond that, the literal term is I've had it up to here with these guys. They just, yeah. they just keep on asking for more information. I'm done. Like yeah. this, is, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm, a, I'm out. And it's all because, as you rightly said, Jonah, they didn't, the, the deal team didn't manage the relationship because ultimately you're, you're managing two relationships, right? You're managing the, your, you know, the, the company you're helping on the acquisition side and then, you know, you should be treating the target acquisition company like a future client or you know, as, as you treat all your other clients because... As a partner, potentially, yeah, you know. Well, that's, well, that's what they're going to be, right? They are.
literally. All right. Look, that was absolutely brilliant, Mark. I've just loved uh, recording this two-part series with you. Now tell us if our listeners want to get in contact with you so they don't make some of the mistakes that we <laughs> just talked about today. How do, how do they go about doing uh, that? Go to our website, uh, www.sherlawsgroup.com. That's S-H-I-R-L-A-W-S-G-R-O-U-P or info at sherlawsgroup.com, which will... Um, our wonderful young lady, Emma, in our London office will then filter that back through to me. So um, Brilliant. I, I love it. I love it. And, uh, of course, if you miss that because you are running along the beach, which you're allowed to do right now, um, <laughs> or in your commute to work if you're back at your work, then, uh, then just check out the show notes because we have the links all there. Mark, I just want to say a massive thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of The Deal Room Podcast, all about how to make your acquisition a success and beat the odds. Now, if you'd like more information about this topic, then just head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com, where you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you're someone who just loves to look at the transcript of a podcast episode rather than just listening to it. On that website, you'll also find details of how to contact the fabulous Mark Johnston at Sherlaw's Group if you would like some assistance with the strategy of growth for your organisation and in working through the concept of how acquisitions could help fuel your business. There you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our legal eagles at Aspect Legal if you or your clients are looking at heading into an acquisition or indeed if you're gearing up for exit. We've got a number of great services to help businesses both in acquisition mode and in exit mode. So don't hesitate to get in touch and organize a free initial consultation where we can give you an outline of how it is that we can work together with your business. Well, that's it. I hope if you missed part one of this two-part episode, you go back and have a listen to it. It's a cracker and talking all about why three out of four acquisitions fail. And as I said, hopefully you found this last episode a little bit more upbeat in where we talked about how to beat the odds. If you enjoyed what you heard today, then I'd absolutely love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. But until next time, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 